Welcome to episode five of the Blocks, Paper, Scissors podcast. My name is Clark Freilich, and sitting across from me is the old codger himself, Clyde Gaw. Today, we are podcasting from inside the art room studios of Sugar Creek Elementary in lovely New Palestine, Indiana. In today's podcast, we will discuss the importance of teacher-led demonstrations, learning activities, and student-teacher interactions, otherwise known as curriculum and instruction in the TAB classroom. Well, Clyde, how's it been? It's uh, been a busy week, and we're this is today's Thursday, uh, November. I'm sorry, October 26th. Um, we've got a big art show coming up, all school fall art show coming up November 17th uh, at New Palestine High School. So we're getting ready right now for that huge art show, which should be. With uh, Mrs. Gardner's class and my my class, we'll have you know over 400 works of art on display, each one unique and individual, and um, so getting that uh, show prepared uh, with the help of the kids that's that's a big job, uh, and that's what we're currently working with uh, from a uh, a curriculum standpoint uh, in the classroom. Yeah, I know you wanted to have a conversation about teacher-led curriculum in the type classroom, and I wasn't sure what you were trying to say. Can you kind of, I'll let you lead off, and, and we'll just go from there, because that's pretty much what we do anyway. So, <laughs> Well, I, I think curriculum and instruction in a tab classroom uh, is a big deal, and um, uh, and particularly in a curriculum as multifaceted as is a tab curriculum because uh, you have students uh, are, uh, for the most part, have autonomy in, in a real-life tab classroom. And, uh, you know, they're doing the work of, of real artists. So, uh, so, so in a tab classroom, tab teachers take kids' ideas very seriously, and they take the, uh, the cognitive diversity uh, that is in their classroom very seriously. And, um, and so unlike other kinds of subject areas where, for example, a teacher of a tested subject where uh, a standardized test is uh, uh, applied at, uh, as a summative assessment uh, for uh, year's end or uh, for a child's at, at the, the end of a, uh, a certain point in time. I know here in Indiana, kids take the I-STEP annually in math, English, and science. So math, English, and science teachers are, uh, they're mandated to do their curriculum a certain way. And it's, it's you know, they have to cover certain content. And um, uh, an art teacher uh, who's interested in tab pedagogy has a little bit more leeway, I think, in the way they can approach uh, their curriculum. And, and thinking about weaving the national and Indiana state standards or whatever state standards you're working from 
thinking about how you might weave that into your curriculum and into the activities in the room, a tab teacher has a lot of leeway. It's almost like you unshackle creativity in a tab classroom, which is one of the biggest draws for me personally to teach in this manner because even though we're not tested, given art as subject matter, I mean, it's, it's a very personal thing for children to do. And it's, it's really hard to write a curriculum from top down to say, this is what these students need to know by the end of fourth grade. Right. And I always question that. I don't know who it was that decided that fourth grade had no perspective. Uh, I know that that was always, I mean, if you look in online, if they're always doing perspective, one-point perspective, two-point, at fourth grade. Yeah. And you can't know that, that a student is going to be ready. At least in my experience, a lot of fourth grade children were not ready. I don't know why it was decided that that was the age to learn perspective, but I know second graders who want to do it, and I know kids who are in sixth grade who still don't get it. I I did a student learning objective, a teacher... uh, teacher evaluation um, experience using fourth grade one-point perspective. Uh, It was was like pulling teeth for the kids to do that lesson. This is before before TAB. I was like, you know, nobody nobody wants to do this. I have to really be like a policeman. And kids are becoming adversarial. And like you said, Clark... They don't care about one-point perspective. Many, some do. Right. Uh, some do, but um, why? You know, if if you have a small percentage of kids who are interested, but you have other kids who who find the activity drudgery. My gosh, the kid. You know, from an art advocacy standpoint, that's a poisonous thing to do: is to force children to do art that uh, they don't want to do, particularly when, when if, you, if you understand biology like we do, we know that art is an innate endowment of children and of human beings. So why, why uh, force an, an assessment on children to do something like one-point perspective on them in fourth grade? I'd, uh, you know, just for the sake of uh, having it be on a checklist, you know, for the teachers say, I Okay, we covered one-point perspective. And I think that's where, at least in the Indiana standards, because they kind of followed suit more as the national standards went, they're a little less specific, Uh shall we say, and really play in toward those artistic behaviors that we're looking for. And we have the flexibility now that, uh, that we didn't have before. Now, just... For our listeners, the Indiana state standards haven't really been updated since 2007. Yeah. And they were then sort of copied from national standards. But, you know, they're easier to to grasp, at least from my point of view. Uh I know teachers, some other teachers, music teachers, they can't stand them because they're so used to being concrete, sequential, Uh you know. And, And some music, you have to teach that way. But that's not the way of the modern learner, I suppose, as, you know, before it was very checklist oriented and now it's it's open ended. So yes. you can still teach the way you did, but you're going to have to think 
as the whole child and not specifically specific tasks. You know, oh, I did recorder in third grade. You know, we did this in uh-huh. fifth grade. So just like perspective in fourth grade or, you know, learning about your elements and principles. You know, to me, that's important, but I can teach that in every lesson and not necessarily a specific lesson. We talk about that constantly about composition and things, and that comes in every lesson and not just a thing to check off on the list. Absolutely. And you and as teachers, we're, like you said, we're constantly referring back to uh, in, in our individualized instruction and in a whole group instruction, uh, small group instruction. We're constantly referring back to all kinds of standardized content, including elements, principles of design. Right. And and so so we we weave that, you know, seamlessly into uh, the curriculum and. Um, so uh, tab teachers have a depth and breadth of knowledge about not just art content, but child development also. And, and, and I'm appreciative of the fact that the, the, the folks who wrote the national standards and the, the state standards in our state, that they took into consideration the cognitive diversity of children and making the standards much more open-ended because... From my perspective, uh, what what I see from the the United States Department of Education and even our state department Department of Education, there has not been a definitive uh, a, a definition of the mind. I I've not read that yet, and that's the number one thing that teachers work with is the mind. And so, uh, you know, how, and there's, there's no learning theory uh, provided by the national or the state departments of education. Well, I thought we were empty buckets. <laughs> <laughs> or are we blank slates? You're, we're in, well, in our situation, we're like <laughs> frazzled old men <laughs> who are. Oh, oh my gosh, what can I do now? So. <laughs> But but seriously, you but no, but we plan. We have an idea of what we're doing, but we don't. We don't have a script. You uh-huh. can't script what we do on an everyday basis. Every day is different. It is every every hour is different. Um, every class is different. You can't count on getting the same reaction from any one or two children. They're going to be different. Um, and so that's what kind of makes what we do so exciting. I know classroom teachers are really jealous of what I do. Now that sounds kind of cocky, but it's not. I'm not saying that we're just the best ever. But no. But having the freedom uh, to do to really teach the individual child, right. as opposed to you know shotgun approach where we're going to do teach everyone this lesson. Let's hope something sticks. And hope something sticks, and then we'll try to fix the lowest ones, and not necessarily the higher kids, the higher achievers. We forget about those, and they become lost. We can't really push them. In a, in a tab classroom, we have the culture of them trying to push themselves. Now, that doesn't always happen, and we're accustomed to that, getting kids to push beyond what they're normally doing. And we set that up either through curriculum or the environment in which we teach. So our, our, our approach to curriculum instruction 
somewhat designed so that we can allow individuals a direct pathway into creative experience, you know, having a room set up for autonomous learning experience that serves the needs of heterogeneous groups, because back to our view of the mind, each child is unique in their uh, neurological structures and their physiological conditions. So our approach to curriculum and, and instruction is one where we're, uh, uh, we are addressing and anticipating diversity and various creative uh, and intellectual needs and desires. So, so curriculum instruction, back to the, the beauty of the tab room, is specially designed to support what we do with curriculum and, instru and instruction. And then our open-ended lesson, whole group at lesson. For example, uh, when, I, when I was an elementary art teacher practicing tab, I remember we would have the paint center, the drawing center, the cardboard construction center. We would have the block center and a computer center and an art library and a textile center and a puppet theater center. So I would I, I can recall uh, talking about Leonardo da Vinci's inventions and uh, you know look at some look at some of the the uh, drawings that were in his notebook and I would have images to show children you know what da Vinci was putting in his notebook his his uh, ideas about flight in the 15th century 16th century. You know, so so already that we are alluding in the uh, the whole group instructional part of our of our curriculum uh, presentation for that particular day, uh, we're alluding to a multidimensional artist who's not only you know wonderful in drawing and painting and sculpture, but is also a uh, inventor and engineer and. Phys, you know, he's practicing physiology, exploring human uh, anatomy, and, and when you look at, you know, his, his notebooks, and we would talk about his notebooks, how, how much was in there and what subjects he was working from, um, you know, and children could see the drawings. So, so we're, we're looking at da Vinci as an exemplar of an, of an artist in, in that particular learning situation as a, an intellect who is practicing artistic behavior and all these other multidisciplinary kinds of behaviors. And Well, I think one of the things that I really like about da Vinci was you can't think of him just as an artist because a lot of people just think of Mona Lisa or The Last Supper and just those two pieces by themselves are incredible pieces. Uh -huh. they're, they're very deep. And yet how he used science... He was probably even more of a scientist than he was an artist. I agree. And how he would he would look at how different muscles looked. If you looked at his drawings, you could see his the, how the muscles are. But then later on, after he was examining corpses uh -huh. and healing back and seeing how the muscles are and change the paintings or change the drawing, because now that he's looked at the real thing and the muscles and how they really act, he would go back and fix that. So he was a very meticulous type of perfectionist. The Mona Lisa itself, what, 13, 14 years. Finally, the the patron. Oh, the... Uh, the patron wanted 
wanted the painting. Uh-huh. And so, you know, in Leonardo's eyes, it wasn't finished. But what we see now is it's, it's definitely finished as a masterpiece to the public. But I'm sure there was a lot of things in there that Leonardo wasn't particularly happy with. Because he was, he was relatively known for experimenting a lot with, with paints and binders, and a lot of his paintings would never dry. Uh, so when, when we're talking to kids, we're talking about da Vinci's, you know, not only just his notebooks and inventions and his connections to science, but also transmitting his, some of his, his uh, technical skill about, you know, I can remember talking about da Vinci's capacity to create sfumato, which is you know lights and darks and and shadow and value that, that smoky yeah this the smokiness of the the figure that, yes how the, how the light falls off from a surface we I I had a big portrait of uh, the Mona Lisa in my room and you know we would I would talk about things like value and 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 uh, the dimensions of the face different parts of uh, the way that da Vinci would would create translucency with um, uh, you you know with light coming through the uh, the colors on uh, the, the skin the various washes the yes very, um, and and we could we could share that in a lesson very quickly and 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 uh, uh, of course you know the kids who are interested in drawing and painting would you know they would take to that the kids, who were who were interested in making da Vinci like flying machines or uh, or or buildings or architectural uh, bridges would would gravitate to the uh, the block center and other kids would would be not be interested in da Vinci and uh, and I can remember talking to Kathy and Diane about you know they would sometimes prepare. And this has happened to me, and I know it's happened to you also, and, and many other tap teachers. We we might prepare a wonderful whole group lesson, and but kids have their own minds, and they have their own ideas about what they want to do that day. So they they would not be influenced by our Leonardo da Vinci lesson or our Vincent Van Gogh lesson. Well, they wouldn't be necessarily influenced at that moment. Later on, they might remember. It's like, hey. I remember when we talked about this, I want to do that. Or, yeah. So we, we see a lot of that. They're just, they're so focused on the here and now that they want to build their block tower. But once they get that out of their system, then they want to move on to the next thing. And that uh, could be a you know, war machine yeah. or things that other things that Leonardo da Vinci did. And because there's so many things that you could talk about and teach children just with that one artist, you could spend literally a whole month you know, talking about portraiture and atmospheric perspective, you know, sketching ideas. Yeah. Uh, I know um, when, when, when I was when I was sharing Da Vinci's notebooks, I was, you know, I would work in assessment that way in journaling. I would yeah. say, you know, boys and girls. If or his da- studies, you know, because uh-huh. his research. Yeah. His, so he, he's a good person to talk about inside of a tab classroom. Um, Even though people thought he was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I know if you are passionate uh, about what you do, you care about that. Right. And so... Uh, the crazy ones are the passionate ones because regardless of what society thinks of you, you're going to stick to your guns because that's what you want to do. And that's what makes people experts. They don't let outside opinions alter what they really want to do. 
And that's why it doesn't bother me if I'm if I'm teaching a lesson on Thornton Dial or uh, I'm teaching a lesson, I'm introducing other artists. For example, one of my favorites, Emily Carr, a Canadian national treasure. You know, she, uh, she uh, immersed herself in nature in the Canadian uh, southwest in uh, British Columbia. You know, her paintings are very spiritual. And so if I'm doing a lesson on any number of artists and introducing, you know, anything about art education content, it does not bother me one bit to see a child who's passionate about their idea want to pursue that learning pathway in my room. Back to curriculum and instruction in a tab classroom, it's okay for a child to, to go on a nomadic learning experience when and like nomadic I, I mean like you know they go off on their own like you say right. if they're passionate and you know they're serious my goodness gracious why would you want to take away that from the child exactly um, and, and we've i've had parents and you've probably had parents they're like well jimmy's always drawing this or jimmy's he's really just always focused on drawing vacuums uh-huh. and if that's what he's passionate about let him draw vacuums let him paint vacuums let him build vacuums out of sticks let him because he's obviously passionate about it he's uh he loves drawing it he's learning uh it doesn't mean just because he's not painting or drawing portraits that he's not getting the best education but that's where they are. And I know you've had a child who's been interested in drawing vacuums, and, and I agree with you. Let's let's take his interest in vacuums, and we can explore other artists who are interested in drawing industrial objects and landscapes. I think about Charles Sheeler. I would talk about him. But back to knowing that kind of learner, that's the same kind of learner that George Washington Carver was. He had, although he was never... Uh, I know George Washington Carver was, you know, as a, the great uh, scientist who saved American agriculture in the uh, in the depths of the American Great Depression. Growing up, his interest was in collecting nature uh, objects from nature, flora, fauna, and drawing them. And and as he worked his way into he worked his way into art school at Simpson College in Iowa. You know, his his teacher, his art teacher there said, you know, you're a great artist, but I know that um, your real interest is in plant science. And uh, she, uh, you know, was instrumental in getting him into Iowa State. But that's just an example of how following your passions is uh, beneficial. And then if you have teachers who can help you expand and get even a greater depth of knowledge in those areas, um, it's, it's good from a neurological standpoint because uh, from a neurological standpoint, the brain and the neurons uh, of the brain are expanding and thickening uh, the, the myelin on the, the neurological structures uh, are, are, are getting stronger and the connections deeper and so, from a neurological standpoint, that's where it's at in my book. And that's why I, when you and I see a child who is turned on to certain subjects, we are there to help them expand on their interests. And that's the, the wonderment of TAB, 
is that we're not taking children away from areas that they're passionate about. One of the things we we need to talk about is that time during class, then right after we do our whole group instruction, and then we send the kids out to their areas of what they want to do. There's always a, a period of what I call chaos, where the kids are moving around, getting uh-huh. their materials, uh, opening cabinets, trying to find paper, asking me, where's this, where's yeah. that? Uh, but then after I do that, then, then I'll typically, I'll go around to each individual center to make sure that the kids who are at that s- studio have what they need. Uh-huh. And at that time, I'm making assessments of where I need to go. So I see kids working in this area or this area, and I'll make a mental note. I need to come back and talk to this kid. Uh So then I'll go around from drawing to painting to architecture, collage, whatever. I'll go through the – I'll walk around the room and make sure kids have everything they need. And then after that, they all settle down, and Uh then I can go back and start talking to each individual student. Now, I don't get all students to do every day. Right. I'll focus on two or three. Right. And make sure that those kids have what they need and help them. You know, it might be that's when I introduce artists uh-huh. or talk a little bit about elements, principles, working in their designs, things like that. Uh-huh. So it's really a one-on-one. And then, but I hit that with three or four students a day, uh-huh. and then make sure that I hit other students other days, or I might come back and double check how's how's this working out for you, mm-hmm. things like that. You know, I go from large group to small group to individual group in my classroom to make sure that I'm meeting the needs of my students. Right. And I think that's wonderful that, you know, you're you're having a personal conversation with the children about their art, about their personal work and uh, and checking on them as a uh, individual in their own right. And you're and so there's a sense of camaraderie and um advocacy for that child and they typically uh, pick up on that they understand that hey I'm here to help you uh, make your experience as best as it can be and I know that's one of the one of the joyful things about being a tab teacher is that uh, teachers and students uh, the student understands that my teacher is in my corner He's trying to help me, or she's trying to help me have the best experience I can have with my ideas. And oh, absolutely. You're building that level of trust because you do have to handle situations. It's never perfect. Yeah. But you can always come back to that person. Oh, I'm sorry I had to handle that. Let's get back to what you're working on. Yeah. So they do know and trust you for guidance and in. Sometimes you're just going to say, you're doing great. You know, keep doing what you're doing. I'll come back and check on you. No, I, I'll, I'll see. I'll, I'll do the same thing. I'll, I will say, you know what? Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Uh, your work kind of reminds me of uh, Van Gogh or, uh, you know, you're, you're channeling a, a Claude Monet or, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, your work is surprisingly reminiscent of Georgia O'Keeffe. Have you looked at any of her work lately? 
No, I haven't. Well, you should because you know you're you're really looking. Uh, your work is surprisingly uh, uh, similar, mm -hmm. and uh, you're, I think you're uh, sensitive to color and value, like Georgia O'Keeffe. You should check that out. Right. And or just ooh, here's a book, Georgia O'Keeffe. Check it out. Yeah. Look at some of these pictures, you know, and see if they can. It's like, hey, these are very similar. Uh -huh. um, you, you mentioned Van Gogh. I had an experience yesterday with a girl who was doing a landscape with marker. And, and even though she wasn't intending, kids will try to fill in space quickly. She had a very rhythmic movement to uh -huh. her marker. And it reminded me a lot of Vincent Van Gogh's ink pen drawings uh -huh. of his landscapes. And oh, I did. I said, I said, man, this reminds me so much of... Vincent Van Gogh, and she's like, what? <laughs> and so I, I pulled up some of those drawings, and I said, do you see the similarity? And she goes, wow, you guys are very similar about stuff at this point. And then hopefully you know, that inspired her to, to do more. And I'll, you know, I'll go back and, and talk to her later because uh -huh. she's one of those students who are always, you don't have to be hands-on a lot with. Uh -huh. um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to some of the results that she does in the future. I know Nan Hathaway talked about uh, doing art history that way with children. You know, when, when you see the, the, the historical connection they're making with their art, uh, she wrote an article about that. I forget the title of the article. But, you know, that's a very meaningful way to connect art history. And, um, and kids remember. And I always like, you know, if I have a child who is very, very sensitive about not drawing realistically or naturalistically, uh, I will take it upon myself to discuss the fact that, hey, there are a lot of great artists who uh, don't draw, uh, who draw from in intuition and are... Uh, they're powered by their emotional realms. For example, Antonio Tepes or Robert Motherwell. Um, Cy Twombly. And, and, and so we can, you know, we do the same thing with those kids who are doing uh, experiment, experiential kinds of uh, exploration with drawing and painting material or any kind of material. Uh, and, um, you know, we can, we can pull those folks up too. And, right. and, um, and emotionally, I think, too... For those kids, even though technically they're not at the level of those artists, uh -huh. they are drawing in similar manners and therefore validating what they're doing. It's not just scribbling or it's not just putting globs. Uh -huh. They're making artwork similar, giving them validation instead of another student saying, oh, that's terrible, or that's not a dog. Uh -huh. You can say... It might not look like a dog to you. However, other people interpret dogs in this manner. Check out this artist. Check out this artist. Check out this artist. And you give them a whole variety of possibilities uh -huh. to let them understand that there is no right answer. You right. Know, I think a lot of kids at elementary age, they're looking for the right answer, the one way that you can do it and do it right. And we're open to the many ways to do it right. And there is no one right way to do it. Right. I know Julie Toole was sharing an article on uh, Tab Educators, Facebook, formerly Midwest Tab, 
uh, about um, non-objective drawing and children's art. And um, developmentally, it's, um, you know, we shouldn't really make comparisons to adult art with children's art because the children have, another, they use art as another way to convey their language. And so there's, uh, and to convey their thoughts. And so uh, from language, from the development of language, um, allowing children to, to make all kinds of different marks on their paper. And so even though it may look like a Jean Dubuffet, you know, the children have an entirely different reason for making their drawings the way that they do, um, unlike Dubuffet, who was fascinated with children's art and outsider art. The children still have their own reasons for making art that, the, the way that they do. So, uh, so I always get carried away with, with saying, hey, you know, the abstract expressionists, they were making art similar to what you're doing. Uh, the, the children, the children are not there. They may not exactly have an understanding of the abstract expressionists' uh, history and um, uh, and philosophy, but uh, certainly uh, the idea that children want a direct pathway to self-expression and uh, experiment with mater art materials, as the abstract expressionists did. That certainly uh, there's a connection there. So I, I, I try to be careful sometimes thinking about you know, children's reasons for making art the way that they do. They have their own reasons. But certainly helping a child who is, does not have confidence in his art-making ability, I'll always draw on the fact that you know, there are tons of artists who, who draw non-objectively. And so it's okay to just experiment with materials and color and shape and and uh, composition and uh, uh, juxtaposition of all kinds of elements and principles of design, and it's it's uh, and so trying to pump up children's confidence in their drawing and painting ability or art creation ability, you know, that's you know always pulling up old artists to to help them see what other folks have done similar to what they're doing in real time is a, is a wonderful uh, thing about TAB from a curriculum standpoint. I think it helps in that it connects a young artist to the world of art in that they have similar looks or a lot of kids in elementary are trying to emulate others' artwork. Uh-huh either copying or, you know, direct transfer, somehow they want it to be just like yeah. that image. So when you have a person who's being more expressive and loose with their materials or experimenting, you can say even your experimentation is another, exp we're not comparing it that this is better, it's just like. Uh -huh. Then they're like, oh, Mr. Fralick said my artwork's like so. <laughs> you know, I'm just like Van Gogh. But they, I mean, they do. As as an art teacher, that's where I have to be very careful of how I talk to a student. Yeah. Because even a flippant remark, you know, that one time that you say something, that's the one time they're going to listen to you. Uh -huh. And so that's a lot of pressure 
you know, not to to say the wrong thing yeah. or to. I'm, and there's times, you know, I'm, I'm not guilty perfect. of it. I'm not perfect. It's like, yeah. it's like, oh shit, you know. <laughs> I'm guilty of it myself. I've done. I've said the wrong thing to a child who <clears throat> asked me my opinion, Miss Mister Gaw. How do you like my work? And I said, Well, um, you know, I think you might improve it if you did this right. to it. Oh, you don't like my work, do you? <laughs> they take it very they sensitive. They do take it personally, it. you know. And I just, I think I just had this conversation with some of my older kids. I'm and because they get lazy, I, you know, I don't want to use the word they lazy. Do. They do. They choose to quit when they yeah. need to engage and persist. Yeah. So they come up to me and they say, "Is this done?" Uh-huh. And I say, "What do you mean? Is it done?" I said, "You're asking me for permission." When you come up to me, you're asking me to give you permission to quit. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell you it's done. Yeah. I'm going to ask, turn around and say, what do you think? Yeah. Um, that's that's the questioning. That's the, uh, the questioning. The questioning of emergent curriculum that is practiced by TAB teachers is, you know, the constant questioning of the children with <clears throat> open-ended questions. You know, what do you think? What do you think? If you were to add three things to make it more interesting, what would you add? Well, I'd add this. Well, why don't you try that? Because it is, they do get tired. And uh-huh. I and kids are still in the, the attitude of, of mono creation. They create uh-huh. one piece, they stop, they move on to the next piece. They stop, they move on to the next piece. It's one of my techniques or processes to get them to work on several pieces at the same time. Uh-huh. So to keep that in their portfolio, you bring it up to me and you ask me if it's done. I say, maybe it's done for now. Uh-huh. Put it in your portfolio and let's look at it next week. Right. And I'm always telling my kids, let's look at it with fresh eyes. That's a good uh, one, yeah. We're, we're going to look at it with fresh eyes tomorrow and or the next day and see what you think. What <clears throat> what might we do to it to give it that extra special pop? You know, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll use words like pop. You know, what can we do to really refine this work? Because uh, right now it's, it's it's interesting. It's got you know it has some interest to it. It's interesting. I, you know, of course, you and I know that's like yeah. the death word. Oh, your work is interesting, but for I mean, fascinating. Seriously. It's fascinating. <laughs> It's magnifique. <laughs> Stop right there. Don't touch anything until tomorrow. And they're looking at you like, what? I want to I want to finish it. No, because it's getting really muddy. Yeah. Yeah. The, that's the other danger we see. And, you know, kids will overwork something. Right. But, but m- most of the time I see coming from my room is, you know, they get to a certain point and they're, and here's where risk taking comes into play. You know, we've got a nice work right now. What if we, what what do you think we might do to it to really give your work some pop? What would, uh, you know, it's a nice piece right now. How can we, uh, how might we consider making this, a sh- you know, a, like a show piece? And so, um, uh, so the, questioning them, it helps to uh, elevate uh, their capacity to think beyond the given information. Uh, there's a Jerome Bruner uh, 
point of uh, constructivist learning. You know, when kids go beyond the given information, um, you know that real learning has occurred. And that's learning that's going to last uh, for a long time. When they get used to going beyond the given information, that's a wonderful thing that you've, that you've provided them with opportunity to do on their own. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's not from being a taskmaster, but somebody who's <clears throat> helped them uh, understand their own capabilities. Right. And, and helping them uh, in the moment uh, go, uh, go to, to new realms of experience that they may not have, uh, have, have done before. Curriculum instruction is a huge subject. And we is. could talk forever about this. It is. But it's time to finish this podcast. However, I promise we will return to this topic at a later time. Be sure to listen to our next podcast as we will be joined by a special mystery guest. Well, this is going to be good. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Just a reminder to our listeners, if you have a question or topic, you would like Clyde and me to discuss, just email it to seagaw at blockspaperscissors.com. You can also record your question on your mobile device and send it in to the same address. Thanks for listening to Blocks Paper Scissors Podcast. <laughs>